Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with John Piccini about his fascinating new book called Human Rights in 20th Century Australia. It was published just last year by Cambridge University Press. After the Second World War, an Australian diplomat was one of eight people to draft the UN Declaration of Human Rights. And in the years that followed, Australians of many different stripes, including activists fighting for Aboriginal rights and women's rights, communists and even anti-communists, all invoked human rights in their respective political struggles. Yet, despite these Australians' embrace of human rights, the Australian government didn't sign the Declaration of Human Rights until 1972, and then it took even longer to ratify it. This ambiguous relationship is precisely what Piccini attempts to entangle in his book. The result is illuminating. By exploring these many different groups' invocation of human rights, Piccini is able to show how ideas and language can circulate even across ideological divisions. This book should be read by those interested in the history of ideas, human rights, and civil disobedience, along with those like me who know little about Australia but would like to learn a lot more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm speaking with John Piccini, a historian at the Australian Catholic University, about his book, Human Rights in 20th Century Australia. Thanks for being on the show, John, and uh, for defying time zone differences. And, and, and technical difficulties, yes. Thanks so much, Dexter, <laughs> for having me on. I really appreciate it and look forward to a productive conversation. Yeah, I, I yeah, really enjoyed your book. I le- enjoyed, enjoyed learning about an area of the world that I know far too little about. And so I'm excited that we're going to um, uh, yeah, have a chance to chat about it. And I'm also happy that we're talking because we've known each other for a few years over Twitter. But mm. now here we are talking, not quite in person, but on this podcast. Mm. Almost, almost, almost IRL. Yeah. Yes. This is this is as IRL as we'll get. Yeah, probably for a while. Yeah, unless you can get me out there to give a talk. Yeah, exactly. So, just to start our conversation off, what led you to becoming a historian? Yeah. Thanks. Um, thanks, Dexter. Um, before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm recording on the lands of the Yagara and the Turrbal peoples, uh, the indigenous inhabitants of the Brisbane area uh, in Australia, and that this land was never ceded. Um, to the invaders in 1788, and I'd like to acknowledge uh, the elders, past, present, and emerging. Uh, that's a really important aspect of Australian. Um, we, we 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 do this acknowledgement, and it's really I think important, not just um, for general reasons, but particularly for my research as well. Because what made me a historian was really interested in, um, I guess from a perspective of politics, how we ended up where we are today. So I kind of became involved in left-wing politics during the Iraq war. And that's what really got me 
thinking about history in new ways. It may have got me really first starting to sit down and read history books and to sort of think about contemporary history uh, because I wanted to understand why, um, how American imperialism functioned and how Australia, my country where I'm from, um, how Australia acted as a kind of secondary or what Bush called a, a deputy cowboy in the Pacific. So that's what kind of first got me interested in, in history was thinking about how we can understand the history of um, of reactionary politics, but also um, as I got further along and started um, doing history at uh, University of Queensland and doing my honours thesis and then my PhD thesis, I was really, I became really um, fascinated with archival research and being able to look into the histories of activist groups who've opposed war in the past or who fought for a better world in the past. That was what really interested me. That was what, um, so I, was, I, I thought that I could get find that kind of useful history, that usable history, I suppose, and apply that to the struggles that, are, that were ongoing today. So that's kind of what got me started on my, on my trajectory as a historian. It led to my uh, first book, which was uh, Global Radicals, um, Transnational Protest uh, in Australia's six, in, um, the Global 60s in Australia. And that was published with Palgrave in 2016. And that really kind of looked at how the, um, how the radicalism of the, um, of, of the 1960s globally influences Australia. So I found, I looked at how activists traveled overseas to go to and experience epicenters of the 1968 revolt, like whether that was Paris or in Vietnam or, or in South America, other locations, and bring that knowledge back to Australia and deploy it in activist contexts, and also how, I guess, activists were reading and understanding in Australia the global dimension of struggle. So that not just uh, kind of student activists, but also indigenous activists and what and whatnot. So that's kind of the kind of what got me into it and what it kind of led to, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And so uh, I assume that most of our listeners are not going to be Australian. Um, and so um, uh, I think we should just quickly highlight why you think um, uh, transnational historians should pay attention to the history of Australia? That's a very good question. And one that, um, you know, that it's, it's an interesting question because when people talk about transnational or global history, they usually tend to mean that they want to look at relationships between America and mm-hmm. Europe. Or, um, and that largely it, really. Um, at least that's been my, my understanding. And I think what is really interesting about the Australian context, what the Australian context brings is, A, it breaks that kind of parochialism, which mm. you can have, kind of Atlanticist parochialism. And in practical terms, I think, um, even following from um, people like um, James Bellish, this idea that um, it actually is in the peripheries of the global system where we can actually sometimes find the most interesting and substantive changes because it's in the peripheries where new ideas are tested out. It's in the peripheries where, um, where um, modes of governance, where new modes of governance are tested out and whatnot. And I think in the Australian context in particular, particularly in the earlier 20th century, Australia was a real model, globally speaking, particularly for America and elsewhere because Australia in the early 20th century pioneers social reforms like um, being the second country in the world after New Zealand to grant uh, white women the vote in 1902 and the first country in the world to legislate a living wage 
1907. So it becomes this real like social laboratory, you could say. It was called um, a working man's paradise at the time, and was kind of captivating the audiences, captivating audiences in America and in Europe as this place where the dreams of radicals were being lived out and, and delivered. So I guess what I want to look at is that historical context of Australia's role as sort of a progressive lodestar in a strange way. And also then, of course, kind of what do people think about Australia today? Is that the main idea that people have about Australia today, if they have any at all, is probably about the refugee situation and about mm-hmm. Australia's um, offshoring of the asylum seekers of asylum seekers and how that's been um, taken on by the European far right in a lot of ways, as well as kind of our points-based system of immigration, which was recently taken on by Boris Johnson in the UK as his new model. So Australia, I think, has served as a progressive and a reactionary model in transnational politics. So I think from that, so yes, from that general perspective, I think it's important that we break with the general parochialism of the Atlanticist context and to see that there are other parts of the world where interesting things do happen and that they can actually shine really fascinating lights on how global ideas live out locally. And I think it's also important just as an Australianist for me to defend, you know, this, my interest in Australia and why I think that we should, that global historians should focus on Australia and why I guess I was uh, successful in getting the book published with the global press, really, is that there's recognition that, yes, Australia is somewhere where we should be interested. Australia does have an interesting history and Australia does, in a lot of ways, influence how, um, influence global politics in ways that you might not expect. Mm-hmm. I think that's really well put. Uh, and as well, I assume that most of our listeners are not going to be experts in the history of human rights. Um, and uh, maybe I'm making that assumption uh, uh, too casually. Uh, <laughs> uh, can you just quickly share with listeners um, why uh, you and other historians think that human rights is really like a modern novel concept that emerges somewhere around the 1940s? Yeah, that's a very good, very good question, and I have to now speak for like literally dozens of historians. Thank you. This is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I guess the modern school of of human rights historiography that you're kind of referring to emerges like in the late nineties, I suppose. But the main works that are associated with it um, would be, you know, Lynn Lynn Hunt's work on inventing human rights uh, in two thousand and seven, and then a kind of the great kind of response to that kind of work, which was Sam Moyne's uh, The Last Utopia in 2010. And, and that, that book did really influence me coming into the study of human rights because I was at this sort of at the end of my last project, my last book project, the PhD really, which was um, about what happened to the global radicalism of Australian social movements after, say, the mid-1970s when there's a real a number of reasons in the Australian context that radicalism really ebbs. And I guess I wanted an answer as to why that ebbed away. And I, I was able to then, you know, because it was in 2011, 2012. So uh, Last Utopia was fairly fresh. And I was able to find some answers there in terms of what happened to these social movements is that a new language was emerging, which was starting to overcome those languages that were more commonly utilized by activists of the 60s and early and early 70s. So I guess 
that's kind of how I came into it, why I was interested in the in this question. But I guess the broader argument of historians who are interested in human rights as a modern phenomena would be that it is very difficult to locate what we now consider to be human rights in the historical record before really the 1940s. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. I've just been <laughs> writing a lecture about it, so I won't, I won't go too in-depth. But, um, but effectively, you know, the, we can locate, um, you know, the examples of rights culture like defensive, like jury trials or um, freedom of speech or uh, emancipation of slaves. We can locate that throughout the historical record. But... It doesn't possess the tonality. It doesn't possess the universality of the 1940s period where you get this the emergence of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It really consciously brings together a lot of that, a lot of those traditions in the past and tries to develop a document which reflects the history of um, of the push for human emancipation, but that um, also sort of operates, um, but also um, kind of operates as a bit of a blueprint for the post-war world as well. So on the one hand, it's this very historically thinking document and sort of trying to um, think about what those rights mean in different parts of the world and how has history informed those, but it's also thinking about the future and the future that Moyne argues that it's thinking about isn't the future of individual rights that we have today. It's the future of the, of really the social democratic state. It's the future of um, rights as imagined as the rights of citizens in an emerging world of nation states, which is a very fundamentally different thing to even rights as we imagined them, um, as we as as they imagine the ancient world, or even in the age of revolutions, arguably as well, and that there wasn't an international sense in which uh, in the, in which rights existed. You know, that it was very much within individual national frames. Great. Um, I think uh, you've you've brought us all up to speed on the historiography of human rights. That's uh, that's perfect. Um, so reading your book, I um, really got the sense that Australia is just like such a fascinating case study for thinking about human rights um, because um, on the one hand, um, you know, uh, uh, there was an Australian representative um, who helped draft the UN Declaration of Human Rights that you were just talking about. Um, but then Australia doesn't actually sign um, the declaration until 1972 and then took even longer to ratify it. And so there's a real like, almost like paradox um, uh, within this um, relationship can you sketch for listeners uh, what Australia's relationship to human rights has been? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're right. That it's really interesting that Australia manages to get itself onto this in the first place. So there's eight nations who write this Declaration of Human Rights with um, Eleanor Roosevelt sitting on as the chair. So that Australia was able to get itself on is indicative of our push Australia's push as like a middle power in the 1940s to really exert our influence in, in the world and people have compared us to South Africa at the time where um, Jan Smuts plays a similarly kind of um, instructive role and he actually kind of is a reason that human rights is even in the United Nations Charter in the first place is that he's, he's really instrumental in getting that in. But in the, in the Australian context, what Australia wants to get out of participation in the UDHR discussions is kind of a way around 
domestic problems that were occurring at the time. Really, the inability of the Social Democratic Labour government that was in power at that time to be able to, um, because of Australia's complex federal system, to be able to exert the sort of authority to be able to make the sorts of progressive changes that it would like. So there's a constitutional referendum in 1944, and that that fails. Um, And that means that the Australian government is unable to control the 14 powers that they wanted, which were um, things over like communication, uh, wages, um, these sorts of things. So... Within that context, they were. Um, what happens is that they, the Australian government, tries to push for these to be ratified at the international level instead. Particularly, there's a focus on full employment and um, other sorts of right to work and, and, and economic rights that the Australian government really pushes for in the late 1940s, and that our representative um, Herbert Beer Evert uh, is really central to, to trying to push and. As such, there's mentions of full employment or the importance of employment policy in the Charter, but he's unable to actually have anything too meaningful pushed into the UDHR in the end, but still is able to kind of return to Australia um, crowing of the human rights success of his government and referring to the Human Human Rights as the international equivalent of the Australian lexicon of the fair go which is that everyone deserves a fair go and means that everybody has the uh, everyone should have the same basically equal access to resources to be in order to make sure that they are happy and living decent lives that's basically the equivalency of the fair go and that the universal declaration represents that so that's a real high point of australian international engagement in the in the um with the international human rights system. Evert's really central in pushing for this. Pushing this, he's even arguing at the stage for an international court to be established to judge and adjudicate on human rights issues, which still does not exist to this day. So he's really quite forward-thinking in a way. But that government, the Labour government, loses office in 1949. And then you really have this period from 1949 to 1972 of a very of a government of a very conservative government in Australia, which is very critical of human rights as they're practiced at the United Nations, particularly as the end of, as human rights itself sort of changes in its meanings. So human rights um, in the 1940s is, has a, is seen as both individual rights in terms of, you know, your standard rights to freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, um, that no one will be harmed, um, yet no, uh, like um, pro- prohibitions of bodily harm and whatnot. But also there's these economic and social and cultural rights that are, that are in there, that are included in there. But increasingly, as the complexion of the United Nations starts to change in the era of decolonization, as more and more new nations join the United Nations, particularly after 1960, there's a real sense that the West is losing control of the human rights program because increasingly those nations are able to exert authority in the human rights system um, to change the way that human rights is being read. And Roland Burke's work on this is really good. Just a shout out is that, he, is that, is that the tonality of human rights shifts from the sort of Western 
liberal democratic rights, which is certainly the way that it's envisaged by people like René Cassin, who are the, like, these founding figures, towards um, the rights of decolonization and the right to self-determination and the rights to natural resources and these sorts of things. So you get in 1960 the, the, uh, the famous um, um, UN declaration on the, on, on, on the rights of colonised peoples to seek independence. And this, for Australia, is really problematic on a few grounds. Australia is um, and it's somewhat of an international pariah on two counts. First is immigration. So on immigration, there's the Immigration Restriction Act, which has been enforcing Australia since 1901, also known as the White Australia Policy. And that has changed a lot over time. I can't really explain all of that now, but basically at that time, uh, that policy was used to exclude people on the basis of race from Australia. I understand there was a similar system in place in America as well uh, that was abolished in the 1960s, is my understanding. It took a bit longer in Australia to get rid of that policy. Um, but the White Australia policy was one reason that Australia was seen as, um, that Australia saw itself as threatened in this new sphere of human rights that privileged ideas of racial equality and anti-colonialism. The other, of course, is the question of Indigenous rights. Indigenous Australians were um, very much second class and very, very much still are second class citizens in Australia throughout most of this period. They weren't Indigenous people, were, um, were not properly counted within the census even until the 1960s, within the Australian census um, until the 1960s. So there's this, and there's an increasing understanding that Indigenous peoples are, that, that Indigenous Australians are, um, incre- are second-class citizens. This is increasingly globally, people are increasingly globally aware of this. So that makes the Conservative government from the 19, 1949 to 1972, these two issues make it very cautious and even obstructionist in terms of negotiations, particularly around the so-called twin covenants, which are the two um, the two um, treaties that make the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from just a series of great ideas to enforceable rules. That does actually take it takes eighteen years for those documents to be prepared for um, the the one they divide the. Universal Declaration into two parts as well. So on the one hand, you have civil and political rights. And on the other, you have social, economic, and cultural rights. So these are only passed in 1966 through, you know, a series of obstructionist moves from the West in particular. It takes a very long time to, to get these documents ready. And Australia doesn't sign onto them until 1972 when there's a change of government, uh, when finally the Labour Party takes power again from Conservatives. You have the Whitlam government come in who make a whole bunch of, who see themselves as really trying to move beyond this tradition of a, a conservative tradition of Australian politics as really as, as fearful of multilateralism, as fearful of the United Nations and says, no, we're actually going to really fully embrace the United Nations now. So they, the Whitlam government signs onto as many UN declarations and uh, treaties as it can, including um, adding a signature to both of the um, to both of the um, to, to to both of the um, human rights covenants, and then immediately starts to, but is unable to succeed within its term of government. The ratification of those that actually takes a bit longer, but we can talk about that later. So, one of the most interesting themes in your book is just how human rights were 
appropriated by very ideologically distinct groups. Um, you know, you have evangelical pro-lifers to indigenous activists to communists. Um, and I, I find this, uh, um, the fact that human rights appeals to so many different movements to be um, just really fascinating. Um, but I, I was wondering if you could um, uh, maybe zoom in on one um, uh, just to start with maybe perhaps the, the, the Communist Party of Australia, um, because, um, you know, on the one hand, um, they were critics of sort of like the, the human rights apparatus and, uh, and so on. But they were also some of the staunchest supporters of human rights. And then also uh, their human rights were, um, were often threatened within Australia. Um, uh, so do, do you want to just um, perhaps tell that story? Yeah, sure. I mean, the Communist Party is a really fascinating example because obviously on the one hand, the communist communism in general is quite critical of the idea of individual rights, of right, of the rights of man. Marx has his well-known critique in, on the Jewish question where he talks about rights as purely representing the rights of egotistical man, the rights of, of private property effectively. So there's that tradition of Marx, of, of, of criti- criticism of rights, which flows through the Communist Party of Australia, which is founded in 1920, soon after the Bolshevik Revolution. In their 1948... Um, in 1948 constitution, they have a very clear line where they say that rights are that rights effectively only are only meaningful in the context of workers' control of the means of production. That's their that's the line in 1948. Basically, this hasn't hasn't stopped the movement from campaigning, of course, for workers' rights and other sort and other sorts of rights during that period. But they're very kind of doctrinaire in their position that while well, we can campaign for rights. You know they're not going to be meaningful within a system of um, of capitalist production. But as you say, circumstances start to change, and the Communist Party increasingly finds its human rights to be something that a language that they can use that they can utilize. This is interesting from another perspective because usually we see the trajectory of post-war human rights as being one which is about the closing of opportunities around human rights, that human rights have this, there's this great kind of period of 1948, 1949, when there's this you know, great excitement about human rights, but then as the Cold War sort of starts to uh, clamp down on understandings of rights, there's, there's, it, it becomes basically a dead letter after the, 19, after the 1940s, that human rights, if you look at... Um, for instance, if you do an engram in Google and you search the term human rights, you find that there is a bit of an uptick in the 1940s, but it's quite small. And it doesn't continue after that period. It's very much a static. The conversation about human rights remains fairly static at that, at that stage. And people say that's largely because it becomes a tool of, of, of the right, basically. It becomes a tool of, of religious conservatives and, religi- and, and cold warriors to beat the Soviet Union. So, and I don't think that that's wrong necessarily. I think that that's probably stands stands to reason in most cases. But that's what kind of makes the Australian case so interesting, because as you say, the um, the, the party faces a whole bunch of problems, and then from nineteen really from nineteen forty nine to nineteen fifty one, where the party is at kind of at a height of its influence. It's come out of World War Two with twenty three thousand members and. And able to exert um, control over about forty percent of the Australian trade union movement, so not a small, 
not small at all, but 23,000 members in the context of a population which at the time was about 6 million. So very significant. Um, and we're able to exert control over hundreds of thousands of trade unionists within that context. So this is not a small organization. And increasingly, the government decides that what it needs to do is it wants to imprison communist leaders and eventually um, ban the Communist Party itself. So what they, 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 in response to this, the Communist Party starts to mobilize the mobilized rhetorics of human rights. It starts to, as well as talking about democratic rights and constitutional rights and civil liberties, the Communist Party starts to talk about that it's human rights, that, that, that the actions of the government violate the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So from a party that's quite critical of rights in 1948, by 1949, they're organizing protests on Human Rights Day against the government. So they're starting to really take on this language of human rights and to deploy it against the government, which is, which, um, is forced by the High Court to take the question of banning the Communist Party to the people in a referendum in 1951. And both sides of this debate try to use human rights to their benefit. The Conservatives try to use human rights, of course, try to use the, the Communist Party um, in the Soviet Union and the people's democracies. They try to use the, that example and say, no, well, the communists don't respect human rights in their own countries, so why should we respect their human rights here, effectively? But the Communist Party may takes a line that, you know, we need, that this is about freedom of association, that, that the UDHR guarantees freedom of association and freedom of expression, and if the party, um, if the party is banned, and that is just going to be a step towards this conservative government under Robert Gordon Menzies, it's going to be just another step in the in the direction of them clamping down on other social movements, including the Labour Party. So that is a message that really is able to cut through. And importantly, because Evert, the human rights apostle, Australia's human rights, the leader of the negotiations in the UDHR becomes the legal, um, takes on the case for the Communist Party. So he kind of breaks with his breaks with the Labour Party to an extent in in representing the Communist Party here. He says, you know, that if we and, and he does use and utilize language of the of the Universal Declaration to say we, you know, that that the UDHR, despite not having um, application in Australia directly through only being you know a, through only being a declaration and only having declarative purpose and declarative um, protections, that we need to be able to respect that. We've just gone come back from negotiating it. We can't be violating it. And through that um, argument, they're able, the Communist Party is able to win that debate. And it's very, very close. The referendum is 51 to 49, basically, whereby, um, whereby the Communist Party succeeds in winning its rights to, to, um, to continue to operate. So that's kind of the first stage, I guess, of the Communist Party's human rights agenda. And I think it's interesting because then in the 1960s, the Communist Party is in a different moment then. In the, I, I track another narrative of the Communist Party's engagement with human rights later on in its existence, in, in really from the mid-1960s onwards, after um, the Communist Party has undergone um, a significant uh, shrinking of its membership due to the actions of the Soviet Union, due to um, the Cold War tensions, due to its... Um, Due to the Communist Party's own, I think, quite Stalinistic policies and approaches, I don't want to defend those. They were, you know, they they did follow the Moscow line for most of this period. But it's interesting that when they break with the Moscow line 
in the mid 60s and they do this fundamentally with the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968 is one of the most important languages that they use is that of human rights and democratic rights is that they are actually they actually you know move which kind of predates in a way the um the embrace of um human rights by the euro communists in the 70s in in across Europe and particularly in Italy communist party in australia in 1967 launches a charter of democratic rights and says you know that we are no longer going to be these critics of bourgeois rights we're actually going to say that we as a communist party are going to be are going to be able to champion and expand on these rights now so instead of instead of um supporting that stalinist line that rights are really kind of not, not meaningful um unless they um are done so within the context of a worker's state the communist party does it almost what does an almost 180 on this it says you know that we actually need to be pushing for and respecting and guaranteeing things like freedom of expression under socialism that we need to be able to convince people that we will allow multiple parties under socialism and they start and they do this within the framework of saying you know that human rights are um are more than an abstract principle is a line on the first page of this charter that they launch that human rights are more than an abstract principle and we need to convince Australians if we want to be anywhere near achieving um the aims that we want then we need to be able to convince Australians you know in a western capitalist democracy that we're not opposed to the values and the rights that they already hold and possess hmm um just to uh, going back to the 1950s um i was uh, <laughs> i was really um uh, surprised to read uh sort of the catholic reading of human rights and so like as you put it the uh, um so the, the the christian advocates of human rights were very interested in suppressing the communists um uh own human rights um at at a certain point um Sydney's Catholic Weekly asked if, you know, banning the communists would contradict the UN Declaration of Human Rights. Um and then its writers said no, a government has not the right to suppress all liberties, but it has the right to suppress some. <laughs> and I think you I think you labeled that a, a very creative reading of the Declaration of Human Rights. <laughs> oh yeah, certainly. Um the Catholic uh story in this and I I is that I was very committed in this book to not just telling the story of the left in the day, which is mm. what I've done in the past is I, and and I think I did that for two reasons the first is you know that 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 the story of we as progressive historians often only tell the story of people who we like or people who we <laughs> and we and we 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 do one or the other we don't often do both we don't often have a a capacity to talk about both within the same context but human rights does that i think and especially in the australian context because human rights is this really kind of malleable language so as i say like in the 1940s it's the the, the catholic hierarchy in australia is amongst the first to start talking about human rights so even before the atlantic charter in 1941 in 1940 the um the first catholic social justice statement is released which is described as a uh, as a statement of fundamental human rights and it is really an attempt i i i argue in the book that this is really an attempt by the catholic um following people like um james chapel's book catholic modern is is really great on this in the european context but that human rights is one of the languages that the catholic church kind of uses as a way of um accepting modernity and also trying to um curb 
the um, totalitarian nature of the of the state that's emerging in the po- that they see as going to be emerging in the post-war period and it's emerging out of the Great Depression, basically. So they see the problems of the Great Depression as really the problems of of amoral capitalism, and they see the solution to it as amoral atheistic communism. So they want to kind of carve out some middle ground that says, okay, we don't want either of these. We want something else, and we want, and they end up settling on human rights as as a way of navigating these two currents. As saying, you know, well, we can actually have, um, we can sit within, um, you know, we can we can have human rights either under a, a liberal democratic regime or a non democratic regime. They're quite open about that. They don't they don't really mind so long as rights are respected, and the these rights are basically the rights of. Um, property, the rights of the family, and the rights, um, basically, um, the right of the of the male of, of the um, of the male house owner of the male householder. So it's a very restrictive version of rights, but it's really the beginnings of I think of this human rights discussion. It's really pronounced if you look at the Catholic newspapers in the 1940s. They're the ones who are most talking about human rights. It's not communist papers, it's not the mainstream papers, it's the Catholic newspapers that are talking about human rights in Australia. And then, as you say, in the 50s, you know, there's this increasing push to, uh, for a real politicised Catholicism that says what we actually need is not, is not um, because the Catholic, because of the um, nature of Australian society, um, the Catholics were generally representative of the working class in Australia. So the Catholics had a prominent role in the Social Democratic Labour Party, which we have in Australia, the L-A-B-O-R Party, because they decided to get rid of the U for unknown reasons. Um, and the Labour Party really um, has, the so Labour Party has a, has a large amount of Catholic uh, membership. And in the 1950s, there's a split. Um, around the question of communism, basically, where the where Catholics use the language of human rights to say, as you say, that you know, while, there's the, while um, we respect and we value our version of human rights, you know, we need to crack down on the communists and we need to, we need to be much more firm in our, in our opposition to the, to, to the communists, basically. And so there's a Catholic split. They've set up the Democratic Labour Party, a funnily named organisation, given that it wasn't particularly democratic. But, you know, the Democratic Labour Party is established as kind of a Catholic adjacent to the um, dominant Australian Labour Party. And then I kind of, what I do is I try to weave this story of Catholic and really conservative religious rights claiming through the book from then on. So I talk kind of about how the Catholic, how the significant Catholic involvement in the um, conscientious objection movement against the Vietnam War in the 1960s, which, you know, obviously this is by progressive Catholics who are breaking with the church particularly during this period of Great Rebellion. They're saying that they're breaking with the dominant uh, reading of, of, of um, with, the, with the dominant pronunciations of the church, particularly during the Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council. They're able to kind of break with aspects of that and set up groups like Catholics for Peace and whatnot in the 1960s. And then in the 1970s, of course, I map how um, Catholics and also the broader emerging evangelical movement starts to, to make use of human rights language in ways I think that are not at all dissimilar from how they were using it in the 1940s. So there's a real continuity, I think, in, this, in the use of, la- of use of human rights language 
by reactionary religious forces when they start to use the language of human rights to argue for the protection of the unborn child. And they have, again, very creative readings of documents like the Declaration on the Rights of the Child. And um, one particular uh, article in the UDHR that talks about the right to life. So they have very particular readings of this that allow them to do it. But as I say, it's not something that comes out of nowhere. And nor is the Catholic rights tradition necessarily always reactionary because, as I say, like all organizations, like all discourses, there are competing sides. And in the 1960s, you saw some very progressive engagement by Catholics in the, around the question of rights and around uh, anti-imperialism and whatnot. But the, those opportunities are largely kind of shut down and foreclosed kind of by 1970, 1972. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so far we've been talking about um, sort of uh, the the left idea of human rights, you know, um, by way of the the Communist Party, and, um, and then we've also been talking about sort of the Christian right and their vision for human rights. Um, but there's another um, uh, sort of set of actors um, uh, uh, that recur in your book, and that's um, Indigenous activists and Indigenous activists appropriated um, the the language of human rights to advance um, their their own agenda, uh, and um, you trace the, um, the sort of the, almost like the changing arena of human rights. So in the 1950s, indigenous activists um, uh, tried to change the Australian state. Um, uh, and so they're engaging with the state. But then in the 1960s, indigenous activists just start advocating for indigenous rights um, and human rights um, at the UN. Uh, can you tell our listeners how uh, um, uh, this happened and, and um, just how did the, the sort of like the, the indigenous um, uh, uh, pursuit of human rights um, change over time? Yeah, thanks. I mean, the indigenous aspect of this is really, really important. Um, it's one of the things that really, again, one of the threads that tracks through the book. Uh, we, I, that indigenous Australians, as I said, have always been second-class citizens since invasion, since the invasion of the Australian continent. Um, and since then, also, um, Aboriginal activists and um, their white supporters have tried to use different languages of rights. So in the 19th century, they're appealing to languages of British citizenship, or not British citizenship, British subjecthood, basically, saying, you know, that we are British subjects, the subjects of the Crown. As such, we deserve the same rights as, um, as white settlers do. And, the, you know, and this is a quite a successful language, and, you know, it does lead to some changes um, and some positive outcomes in the 19th century, but not too many. Um, and this, but this language of what of British subjecthood and later kind of citizenship, whether imperial citizenship or then citizenship of the Australian nation after 1901, uh, was really dominant until until um, the 1940s, when you start to get first the Atlantic Charter, and then the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So the Atlantic Charter. For those who don't know, is a, is a very short document that's written by, um, by Churchill and FDR and, uh, in, uh, before America's even in the war, in World War II. But it's basically a statement of aims for the war effort. And it includes um, language like that, this, that um, the Allies are fighting for the freedom of all the people in all the lands. And in a way, this is kind of um, in a similar way to the way that the Wilsonian moment is read by, read, read by um, activists all over the world as an inducement to uh, 
about independence from empire, the Atlantic Charter is read by indigenous activists as um, being extendable to them and by supporters, more by su- white supporters of indigenous activists at this stage. So you get, um, by the 1950, you get groups like the Council for Aboriginal Rights who are established, who are very much in this Atlantic Charter slash Universal Declaration tradition. And they're saying, we want to, their constitution, the Council for Aboriginal Rights, which has a lot of communist involvement, as well as a lot of church involvement, is saying um, they, they want to bring the situation of Aboriginal Australians into line with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That's their agenda. And that is... As, as you've said, it's the, it, the beginnings of this is to, to sort of bring Aboriginal people to the level of the standard white citizen. And that is, of course, by trying to make changes at the state level, at the level of the nation state. So they want to argue for the removal of discriminatory legislation against Aboriginal people, which is um, all across the different states of Australia. Every state had its own set of Aboriginal policies, which were all discriminatory in different ways. Some combined Indigenous people to living on reservations or what we called missions. Um, some controlled who they could marry or whether they could drink alcohol or whether or any number of other restrictions were in place. And these were all different across the different states. So you got... Um, so there was a real push at the early stage that human rights meant the um, bringing into line of Aboriginal people with the, um, with the white population. So they basically have like an imminent critique of the language of assimilation, which is basically that Aboriginal people will be elevated to the level of the white and you know, they'll, quote, uh, breed out the colour is the argument that the Australian government kind of makes. And they say, well, if you want to make us civilised, quote, unquote, then, you know, then this means you have to abide by the Declaration of Human Rights. This means that you have to make us equal citizens. And that culminates in 1967 with the uh, quite famous in Australia, at least, uh, referendum, another another referendum. Australia has a bunch of referendums. But um, this one is to basically, it, 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 in, on the surface, it's quite a small change. It's the removal or alteration of two clauses of the Constitution, one of which... Um, basically says that um, Aboriginal people um, should not be counted for the calculation of the national population statistics. Um, and the second says that um, the, empowers the government to make laws in regards to all races of people except for Aborigines, because that, and that, because that was a product of the constitution which was made in 1901 when all the states had individual control over their Indigenous people and they wanted to maintain so that's why that, those particular clauses are in there. And the Indigenous Activists campaign for the removal of those two clauses, which, you know, has very, which would have very small impact kind of in an actual legislative sense. However, it's read to be this much bigger claim for citizenship, whereby um, campaign is fought around questions of, you know, Indigenous people, that by the passing of this, 1967 referendum, Aboriginal people will become part of Australia. They will become citizens. They will become, and this will give Aboriginal people the chance to um, the chance to um, to become average Australians. Basically, you know, this is this is the uh, the argument that the activists make. They want to hold the settler state to account on its own terms, 
effectively. And they use human rights as a way of doing that to say that this is a universal, so the human universal declaration of human rights says that we're all equal. Well, let's make that a reality. And this is very successful. 90% of Australians support the referendum. It's a huge, um, it's a hugely successful moment for the, for the, for the um, Indigenous rights movement and for the supporters, including the Communist Party, including the Labour Party, including um, large sections of civil society. So what happens after 1967 is that very little actually changes and there's an increasing realisation that not just political rights are needed here, but it's not just bringing Indigenous people into line officially with the standards of political and civil rights as expressed in the UDHR, but we actually that Indigenous people are going to need more than that to actually be, um, to, to be brought to that level of citizenship. Yeah, so there's increasing, and this is in line with changes um, at the UN in the 1960s, which is saying that colonised people, once after we after um, colonisation ends, that it's not just, you know, a facelift, basically, for these colonies, that they become what um, some call neocolonial appendages. That, you know, what they actually need is economic and social and cultural rights, that we need a broader suite of rights than just national independence, so we actually need to have control over resources, that we need that, that, that colonised states need to um, be able to really self-determine their own future without um, intervention from imperialist powers. And in Australia, that's read out as um, an increasing realisation that Aboriginal people, while seemingly by 1967 being on the books equal in most ways, in terms of there's a removal of nearly all discriminatory legislation within the Australian states at this stage, but it's not enough, right? So they're able to use this language of third world uplift and to say, okay, well, we're also part of the third world. We're people who are subject to colonialism and we demand as well economic rights. So when, as you mentioned, when Aboriginal people go to the United Nations, increasingly they're demanding the rights to practice their own culture, the right to practice Aboriginal culture in Australia, which has been completely annihilated at this stage, or there's been an attempted complete annihilation of Aboriginal culture by the Australian settler state. So they make accusations of genocide at the United Nations and they say that the, um, that the Australian state has been culpable for acts of genocide, drawing on, of course, another very important language of the United Nations. On the other hand, they're also demanding economic restitution. So there's a petition in 1970, uh, five Indigenous rights activists go and visit the United Nations in person, uh, wearing red headbands to signify the blood of their ancestors and hand to the, um, to the um, Undersecretary of the Human Rights Council their petition saying demanding um, full um, return of Aboriginal lands and for, I believe, $6 billion in 1970 money in compensation. So it's a real change in the way that human rights is read from being about we need these political and social rights to what we actually need is a huge economic investment. In fact, they refer to it as like a Marshall Plan for Aboriginal Australians. What they need is like a huge investment in order to bring Aboriginal people up to be able to achieve human rights at all, there's going to need to be a significant investment by the state. So that's the big change in the 1970s, is that there's a push to the United Nations in line with these demands for third world uplift. And then getting into the 70s, later 70s and into the 1980s, there's in line again with the way, with um, emerging pushes for um, what becomes the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, 
there's a push for treaty, and there's a push for sovereignty, and for recognition of Indigenous people as sovereign entities within the international system. And that's the story that I tell towards the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, listeners of this podcast um, probably, probably already know this, but I'm obsessed with uh, the UN. And so um, I, I really uh, um, was struck by just uh, this, this delegation of Aboriginals who uh, you know, left Australia to go to New York um, and um, petitioned the UN Commission on Human Rights. Um, it's just a really um, fascinating moment where you start to see um, like the, the very arena of human rights is changing in Australia, um, where you know things can't just be domestic. We need to take the battle um, uh, to the international stage. That's right. Yeah, and I mean, not to say that Indigenous activists didn't look internationally before that. They certainly did. They they were very closely following, I'll say, the of um, particularly the African American struggle in the civil rights movement, which in and of itself you can track. You know that there's, you know. Martin Luther King's transition, you know, you could argue from more of a focus on political rights but towards the end of his life, more of a focus on economic rights. You can track similar sort of movements in Australia. So the Australian um, activists are very aware of international agenda. But yeah, that there's a real kind of increased mobility in the 1960s and 1970s of Indigenous activists who are able to, um, through some government grants increasingly, but mostly through just like fundraising or asking nice organizations in America to fund them, you know, to be able to fly them. So the flight, these five act- activists took, they were funded by what was called the Congress of African Peoples, which was a um, basically um, kind of more moderate answer to the Black Panthers uh, conference which was being held at the Constitutional Con- or the People's Convention that was being held at a similar time. So they were flown over um, because um, the Black Power Movement in America was increasingly conscious that there were that there was a um, a black people, quote unquote, in Australia, and that they needed to be um, part of these discussions about black power. So they fly the um, Aboriginal rights campaign is over to uh, participate in the Congress of African Peoples, where they have this, you know, there's this little book they publish about it, where they have this amazing time meeting all of these like heads of state of African nations and um, meeting people like um, I think Stokely. Carmichael's there. Um, there's, you know, these really significant figures who they get to meet and really feel like they're part of this new emerging anti-colonial world. And then the UN is almost like a secondary aspect of the, of the whole trip for them. They go to the United Nations because they can, because they're there, and the UN's right there. So they go up. In the archival glimpses I've got of the um, Australian government's response to this is they think that the um, Aboriginal activists get help from an African nation of some sort, but they, they don't know which one exactly in order wow. to draft the petition um, so that it fits within this language of international law. Uh, it's very well, some of these petitions are very well worded and they do fit within this language of genocide, as I mentioned, and also um, they're uh, making these claims for restitution and for um, Indigenous, uh, for basically claims to, that Indigenous claims should be heard at the international arena. So they're obviously getting some assistance from somewhere. Um, to, to do this to do this work and so it's really interesting I'd like to track that down a bit more but I wasn't able to actually pin that down directly but you know there is obviously quite a lot of international um, there's increasing international awareness and um, increasing idea that we can't have any change unless it's going to be internationally directed mm-hmm. um, and just sort of reaching the end of your book um, so uh, you know, in the first few decades, um, there is a lot of 
you know, like human rights related activity, but it's happening um, almost, um, you know, within civil society at different levels, um, uh, you know, like political movements. Um, but the state is a bit hesitant. But then when we get into the 1970s and 80s, um, the state starts to um, be more open to um, uh, human rights and, uh, um, and society more broadly as well starts to be more open to human rights. And um, eventually the Australian state starts to incorporate human rights. Why did this happen at that time? That's a really good, that's a really good question. I mean, the easy answer to that, the one that I assumed starting out was, you know, that this is part of the great human rights revolution of really you know, 77 that, that Moyne highlights as kind of like a key year, right, where you've got the election of Jimmy Carter on the one hand on a, in, as a United States president who is um, trying to salvage America's kind of international reputation after the Vietnam War and tries to do that through a human rights-inflected foreign policy, which is about America's not going to be an imperial power anymore. We're going to, instead, we're going to, you know, become this defender of, you know, of, of, of human rights, this defender of international morality that America has quite always been, you know, and, and to kind of return to that tradition that's been kind of abandoned um, in, the, in the period of the Vietnam War. So on the one hand, you've got this election of Carter, and then you also got Amnesty International, an organization who I write about in the book Australian context, but in the international context, there this is seventy-seven is the big year for Amnesty, right? They um, win the Nobel Peace Prize for their work um, campaigning against torture. So this is a big break year for Amnesty. I've, you know, their records in Australia, there are only about two hundred people in Amnesty <laughs> in nineteen seventy, nineteen seventy-four, but there's like two thousand by nineteen seventy-eight. You know, so the there's a real jump in, in numbers, you know, so there's increasing kind of awareness at the grassroots level, I think, of human rights in Australia um, as a result of the discussion about it internationally. But there's more than that as well, I think. What is happening in Australia in in um, the late 1970s is, is um, the Liberal government at the time, uh, the Liberal Conservative government, this is a bit of a confusing thing for American listeners, is that when about a liberal in Australia, you're talking about a conservative, because um, the Liberal Party has always been Australia's conservative party, and if you, um, the Labor Party is kind of more attuned to your Democrats, basically. Hmm. So, just for the record, I'm actually uh, Canadian, and I'm uh, um, currently recording this in Canada, and it's even more confusing because the Liberals are the centrist party um, in uh, in Canada's electoral system. Yes, no, I knew, I knew you were Canadian, but I assumed you were, you were, you were, you were recording in America. So. Oh, no, no. I'm actually uh, currently in Vancouver. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so there's just, there's just an ocean between you and I right now. Oh, very good, very good. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, I cut you off. The Liberal Conservative government is in, and they are, their foreign policy is closely tied to following American dictates. So they're pretty concerned by this human rights turn amongst the Americans. They're like, well, we're going to need to do something now. (laughs) You know, like if the Americans are going to start adopting a human rights politics, then we should probably start doing it as well. So they um, treat the 30-year anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1978 as very serious. It's the first time that the Australian government really treats any of these anniversaries with any seriousness. And they're doing this very much with Carter in mind, thinking about, you know, the US, the way that the US foreign policy is changing. So this government has this big ambitious sort of agenda for popularizing human rights, you know, printing thousands of copies of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. 
making audio copies of it in indigenous languages, as well as the um, copies of the Race, Racial Discrimination Act, which is which was passed in the dying days of the last Labour government to um, implement the International Convention for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. They start to really popularize these these ideas and and um, and as well as in the international arena, they really start, you know, talk, Australia really starts talking about human rights. So in a way, it's a local response to what's happening in America and trying to ensure that um, America, that, that, that Australia is keeping up with, is keeping up with America and is still able to, um, to rely on America's backing, basically, in terms of our foreign policy. Domestically as well, the Australian government abandons the white Australia policy in 1973 and after then it's really kind of unclear as to what is the kind of unifying basis of Australian society if we're not like a British white British Anglo settler state then what are we the change that they decide on is borrowing from Canada back to back to Canada is multiculturalism is that they decide that what we're going to do is we're not we're not white anymore we're going to be we're a multicultural society effectively and this is kind of a surrogate. They, they see human rights as a surrogate for popularizing multiculturalism, basically. Mm. So the best way to describe this might be that the Australian government released its first ever human rights stamp. Governments love human rights stamps because they can release a stamp uh, for their postage system without having to actually abide by any human rights. You can just kind of <laughs> get someone to paint you a really nice picture and stick it on a stamp. You know, so that's what the Australian government effectively does. It... Um, it releases its 1978 commemorative human rights stamp, which is the faces of four children, um, white, one white, one Asian, one indigenous, and one um, a Mediterranean appearance. So they use human rights as a way of kind of popularizing the idea of multiculturalism as well. So I think that, that that's really important as well, is that um, when as the Australian government starts um, in 1978, starts adopting the language of human rights, they're doing this specifically to... Um, for both international and for domestic reasons. And then in 1981, after about eight years of trying by two governments, they the um, they finally get a national um, human rights institution. They get in the form of the um, in the form of the Human Rights Commission, which is established to oversee um, Australia's um, adherence to um, adherence to the different human rights covenants that they'd now signed on to. Which included both of the by this stage both of the um, twin covenants. So that is kind of the end, and I guess like the crescendo of Australia of the of the book is that the book kind of tells a story, as you say, of like activists who are campaigning around human rights, who are transforming human rights, who are thinking about human rights in new ways, and the government finally comes on board. But when they do so, they when they establish the human rights when they establish the um, the human rights commission. And they do so by pretty much saying that the only that it's really only going to be paying attention to civil and political rights. Mm. So that so they they're doing their own reinvention of human rights when they adopt it. They're saying, okay, so we've had decades of these of racial discrimination of kind of of economic rights of claims by the nineteen seventies, of course, for uh, a new international economic order by third world nations uh, who are demanding greater greater. Um, or um, full access, basically, to the global pie of resources. We are going to, um, so we, we don't want any of that. We're going to use our Human Rights Commission very much for 
measuring Australia's compliance with the things that we really already do. That is, you know, being a British, um, a British constitutional democracy subject to the rule of law, things like freedom of expression, you know, no unlawful imprisonment and these sorts of things that we can relatively easily do. Mm-hmm. Great. And so I think that's a, a, a good place to sort of leave the discussion of the book. Um, and this might be an unfair question because, you know, the book just came out. You also just had uh, a, a child. Um, and so uh, you might, might not have had uh, much time at all to really think about this. But what's the next project that you're working on or that you want to work on? Yeah, thanks. I mean, look, I, you know, we don't, we're in this game and we, we, we don't get to sit on our laurels for very long. So, um, <laughs> I have been thinking, yeah, so we're, I'm um, kind of thinking the next step will be kind of another book about Australia and the politics of decolonization, really. So I want to mm. think about more concretely about these questions of, um, of how the Australian government, Australian social movements related to the moment of decolonization, both in Asia and in Africa and South America and other places. So I really want to um, kind of, maybe that'll kind of be the third book in this kind of series that I've done now about like, uh, on the one hand, first about kind of, you know, social movements in in 1968 and now human rights. I feel like I need a a sustained focus on decolonization is really next and how this not only how decolonization and how looking to Africa and looking to um, Asia and thinking about what thinking about decolonization also rendered Australia somewhat strange within the international system as a nation which is a British sovereign possession, a very resource-heavy economy. It had a lot more probably in common with a lot of third world nations than it had in common with Western nations or had just as much in common. So there's and um also trying to tie this to developments in kind of Australian nationalism at this stage, which is unclear about its relationship to Britain, unclear as well about its relationship to America, and unclear about what it's a like decent type of Australian nationalism that we can actually have that isn't like incredibly racist or just kind of like a, a borrowing of either of those two other or of those two traditions really. So kind of trying to map that and, and a side project about, um, <laughs> about um, the Vietnam during the Vietnam war, the rest and recreation scheme that the uh, American government ran for soldiers um, from Vietnam and the amount and, and those who came to Sydney, actually, to Australia on rest and recreation leave, of which there are about 300,000 um, Americans cycled through um, Australia on their rest and recreation leave during the Vietnam War. So that's a side project that I'm doing with a colleague as well, uh, which we can talk about maybe down the track sometime. Yeah, uh, I mean, both those projects sound really fascinating. Um, uh, uh, that's exciting that you, you see yourself completing a trilogy. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I'm, no, I'm not a... Uh, no Eric Hobsbawm. So. <laughs> Great. Well, I really want to thank you again, John, for speaking with me today. Uh, it was a real pleasure talking about your book. Thanks very much, Dexter. Yeah. And so I've been speaking with John Pacini, the author of Human Rights in 20th Century Australia. And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network.